0: Okay guys, got to get going. We're going to try to get through the uh, end of 11 today with the the, uh, role of the Holy Spirit in scriptural interpretation and then get on to addendum 11a on the inspiration, inerrancy and nature of the scriptures. Uh, So first of all, we're going to be taking a look at uh, the end of chapter 11 with the uh, role of faith and the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is on page uh, uh, 223. And I've got, several, um, uh, uh, I've, I've got several models there to take a look at, and I want to talk about that. Now, the reason that this is so important is the tendency within Protestant circles to, let's put it this way, counter Rome's assertion of authority in the teaching magisterium of the church with the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is doing, telling us that this is the right interpretation. I mean, you have to realize What we've got is this problem of validity in interpretation. Rome answers it through the teaching magisterium, and Protestants tend to answer it in the role and function of the Holy Spirit. I tried to argue in the first part of chapter 11 that there's really a lot more to it than that, that you're talking about becoming the implied reader of the text and that going into that is the regular feed and and other things like that one of the things however in becoming the implied reader of the text is to be someone who believes this is certainly Paul as I say writes to the Saints to the ones who believe this is not none of the books of the Bible are addressed to people who are unbelievers in that sense and even at the beginning of Luke in chapter 1 verse 4 it talks about that you may know the solidity of the things concerning which you have been instructed he says to Theophilus now what is absolutely critical I think you guys in your summaries uh, got all this uh, uh, correctly what is critical is the diagram which in the book, now I've changed mine here, which in the book on page 224 is wrong. So if you'll take a look in the book on page 224, I made a change. uh, Dallas, let me have your book here so I can put this up on the camera. Uh, The way this is actually printed, and it's one of the reasons that I've made this other handout here on page 224, is to have for the believer and unbeliever minimum congeniality and both are low. That is not correct because there is no way that a believer can have that kind of minimal congeniality. He confesses Jesus as Lord. He knows about God and Christ and so forth. So I have made this change that on the low side here, it doesn't go down all the way this way. And if you take a look at the paper that I've handed out, and by the way, I say this to you guys and to anybody watching uh, this uh, broadcast, uh, that uh, the, paper, um, the paper here on the Holy Spirit and scriptural interpretation, as well as the one that I handed out yesterday on uh, tradition and scripture, are in PDF files up on the web uh, and uh, on iTunes, and are able to be accessed there now, if you take a look in the paper on page eight, this is where this is where I make this particular change in the diagram. Now, please see this. this is the important point about the diagram is to see that the believer never is at as low a stage as the unbeliever and that's critical now the next critical thing is to say that the unbeliever is not simply at the low level the unbeliever can go up to so to speak an approximation now the critical thing for you to notice here And this is, I guess this would be the single most important thing of this part of the lesson for today. The key is to see that there is overlap. There is overlap between the believer and unbeliever. And so it is possible that the unbeliever functioning at this level can actually be a better interpreter of the Scripture than the believer functioning at a minimal level. Could actually tell you on level two what does it mean that the dead come out of the tombs. What does it mean in a particular parable. How are you to interpret the parable and so forth. So uh, this is a really critical point Because I think most people operate with the following scheme, implicitly. Believer, unbeliever. Like that. Believers are really well off, can kind of basically interpret everything except for really technical stuff. And unbelievers can't do anything. Well, that's not right. You have people who deny major tenets of the faith, like Rudolf Bultmann did in the 60s, let's say, and yet in many respects could be a very insightful interpreter of the Gospel of John. So um, this model suggests that while believing and having the Holy Spirit Is a real positive. It doesn't make up for the lack of all kinds of other factors which would be part of being an implied reader. Knowing the language, knowing the culture of the time, knowing maybe other books of the Bible, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. Now, however, note. Here, the unbeliever cannot interpret the scriptures, quote, for all they are worth. And that was that change we made, remember in the preface, first day of, second day of class or so, where I said something like, um, in, in your printing it says, that those who do not believe cannot truly interpret the, the scriptures of God or something like that. And I said, change that, you cannot interpret them for all they are worth. So, for example, I would think, I think this is a good example. I would think that an unbeliever is not easily going to come to the conclusion that in the sacrament of the altar, the body and blood of Christ are truly present. Because you're not going to believe that Jesus is the incarnate, omnipresent Son of God. And so you are going to take the words, this is my body and this is my blood, in the sense of represents or is a representation of. Remember my example of, of, of Islam, you know. Mohammed saying, this is the blood I shed for the cause, and so on like that. I just think it would be really hard to get to any kind of realistic understanding of the Eucharist if you didn't believe in Jesus Christ being the Son of God. So I think certain ultimate things may remain closed to the unbeliever, the one who is not possessed by the Spirit but having the spirit doesn't automatically give you knowledge of the Greek language of the culture of Palestine how parables work what is prophecy and fulfillment go like and so on and so forth and that's why I said yesterday as we kind of introduced this it is just so easy for Christians to believe that the Holy Spirit is a trump card to bail you out when you're not sure how to defend your interpretation you cannot do that it is essentially a linguistic process and if you don't have evidence you can't just say the spirit told me now the um, the other model is a model that I guess would work, and a couple of you asked about this. I'm going to get to the papers here in a minute. That I guess would work with something like an unbeliever interpreting the Bible and really attempting to be faithful to it, or let's use a different parallel, you trying to interpret the Quran. So you kind of try to get inside the system. The way an actor playing Hamlet tries to get inside the thought world and the situation and how Hamlet might really feel. And then, if, if you follow this as the model, what happens then is, if you are a believer and have the spirit, then you kind of confess, yes, that is true. As opposed to simply, yes, the Bible claims that Jesus is the incarnate son of God and rose from the dead. Well, that's what it claims. You know, that would be you just being an actor, so to speak. But when you say, yes, and I believe that that is true for me, then that would be kind of making the provisional belief a real belief. Um, A number of years ago, long before you guys were born, there was a show called the twilight zone and it had a great show once in which it showed this guy and his secretary having a kind of an office romance then about 10 minutes into the show or so or maybe more all of a sudden you hear cut that's a take Cameras move back, and you realize it's the set of a TV or movie studio. Well, the actor and actress on there say, what do you mean cut? They're kind of caught in the world, and there is another kind of reality outside. Well, that would be like having faith in this model, that you're actually caught and you are in the world. We would probably, as I said, think of this as the way we might approach trying to do the Koran. You would try to get into the mentality of there is no God but Allah and, and so forth. Um, personally, I think this particular model is better but there are some on the faculty, like Jeff Oshwald, who think that the other one is better. But, I mean, that's just to kind of explain those two things. The, um, uh, going back to this one right here, what is, what is the positive of being a believer and having the Holy Spirit is utter openness to the text, readiness to receive it, and beliefs that will go in as part of the matrix because for example you would affirm the regular fide and so forth. Now let's go to your uh, papers here because you did have a number of uh, questions. All right, Josh. Is this saying unbelievers cannot interpret the scriptures or is this saying unbelievers cannot interpret or understand the scriptures, understand so that they may have faith? Uh, Well, I'm saying that they can't interpret them to the nth degree for all they're worth. I'm not saying that they can't understand them. And in fact, they could actually get pretty darn far. I will have to tell you that this particular diagram if I were to do it again, I would probably make this high closer to the other high. But this was actually done on an old, a very old Mac in the living room of Chuck Aaron. And at the time we did this, this was the best we could do. So, you know, might want to move that out here. Might want to move it out quite a long time. So, I mean, that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make there. Now, uh, Eric. Eric. Your proposed methods of interpretation involve logic, reason, and historical study in order to provide oneself with keys to the assumed matrix of a text. Can't anyone assume these necessary pieces of facts to construct a matrix for interpretation? Yeah, they can get going a long way on that line. For example, wouldn't Abraham Heschel, not a Christian, be considered a decent interpretation of the Prophets? Yes, sir. Insofar as he gets it right, well, All right, but I mean, let's just say a decent interpreter of the prophet. Nevertheless, your final conclusion, which sees the Christocentric nature of the scriptures as key to the entire matrix, forces the implied reader, in order to reach full status, to be a part of this Christocentric community of reason and faith. Otherwise, the interpreter is never going to assume implied reader status in its fullest possibility. Yes, that is exactly correct. Is exactly correct. And so you can, on one level, interpret the Old Testament, but this is why I've got that section in 11C about that whole canonical thing. The Old Testament can be interpreted without the new, but it's like taking only part of the matrix. See? So when you take the new with it, now the matrix expands. And so. You would see, you know, for example, I would say, take Isaiah 53. Without the New Testament, you could more logically interpret that as the prophet Isaiah or the people of Israel. Once you put the New Testament into the mix, then I think those recede as possibilities. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that was uh, that was excellent. Um, okay, uh, Nick. Should we use a Jewish rabbi's knowledge of customs and culture of the Old Testament as a resource? Of course. Because that's part of being up here on the scale. That, that is exactly right. And that's why we use those kinds of things. Or a, an unbelieving grammarian or something like that. That is exactly correct. Uh, now, the last paper. Uh, Josh. Josh. This is a small point, but I think that you're making a mistake by saying it this way. I'm reading from Joshua. This is why the Bible can only be actualized by those who are part of the Christian faith. I think you've got to put in there fully. You, this is just a big point with me on this. It's not like unbelievers can't know anything, and believers are. Are um, you know really in great shape? Not for the interpretation of specific passages. I mean, my own mother is a good example of this. My own mother has an extremely strong faith, she has a stronger faith than I do. I think I'll tell you what, though, I'd never trust my mother to interpret a parable because. She's kind of not on the parable interpretation or how is, what's the setting in the ancient Palestinian world and all the rest of that. So having the spirit does not automatically make you a good exegete, and that's what we're talking about now. We're talking about becoming an exegete, and that's only one of the factors. Okay, so before we move on to addendum 11a, any other comments or questions on this? Okay, good. Nice papers, yeah. I guess uh in the so with position A here. Um point right. three says in giving such congeniality with the text, yeah, i.e. faith, he that is God enables one to become fully the implied reader. And I'm just wondering, like is there this, just in the there's this spectrum of becoming the fully implied reader on different levels. I mean, how do you you separate, how how do you say that, uh, you know, so that we don't have this this huge degree where these people got it right because they've lined up this and that? I I was just thinking along those lines, but I I can't really get to a solid question. Uh, You know, all I'm... I think all I'm trying to get under number three there is in order to make the move to the last areas of this. I mean, take somebody like my teacher, Martin Franzman, who was a fabulous interpreter of the scriptures. See, he's not going to be there without being a believer. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, no, that's a good question. Okay, good. So now we just want to spend the balance of the time, and I don't want to, uh, you know, there are two places in this course where it's possible to kind of get yourself stuck uh, in a never-ending set of questions. One of them is Addendum 11A, and another is in the area of textual criticism. So uh, I'm going to try to keep this, uh, under control in as much as I can here uh, and uh, your papers were exceedingly helpful on this and we're gonna get to those as fast as possible but I would like you to take your books addendum 11 a now starting on page 230 and I'm just gonna hit a couple of highlights and then go to the papers Now, the clear approach that I am taking on pages 233 and 234 is paralleling the two natures of Christ in the incarnation with the nature of the sacred scriptures as having divine and human characteristics. So, key then is this central paragraph on 233. Otherwise expressed, our Trinitarian God, whose works are one, has acted in human history in the persons of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and actions of each are analogous to and therefore illuminate those of the other. To understand one is to understand the other. Now, in one sense, I don't have any proof for that. Okay, I mean, I acknowledge this. I am saying it's consistent with a Trinitarian understanding I mean you guys have been in class long enough to know that in just about anything with regard to interpretation we're all making it up you know I, I mean there, it's, it's not written some place in the Bible that you got to be the implied reader it's not written some place that you interpret on level 2 we are trying to take the evidence and draw conclusions Therefore, the divine nature and attributes of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate eternal Logos, exist and relate to his human nature and attributes in the same way in which the divine nature and attributes of the sacred scriptures relate to their human nature and attributes. And that is kind of the big move that I'm making in this chapter. Now, if you'll take a look at page 234 in footnote 7, To me, this is huge. The incarnate divine Logos looked absolutely human as the reactions of many in the gospels, including his fellow townspeople and even family members, attest, and so apparently did the writing of the apostles and prophets. So in other words, in Second Thessalonians, Paul says, you know, don't be shaken as though uh, through a letter as though written by us. Well, nobody said something like this. Jeez, oh Pete, we can't imitate a letter of Paul. They're divine letters. We can't do those. No, they clearly thought that they could produce one that looked like a Pauline letter. So, uh, and with Jesus, nobody went around saying stuff like, you know, they said, wait, hey, isn't this... The son of Mary and Joseph aren't his sisters in town with us. What's the big deal with this? They didn't say. You know, he always wondered about that. He never got any math problems wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so there's there's nothing obvious in that sense about the human nature of Christ and and about the writings. Nothing obvious about them. That makes you question that there's something more there. Now, when we go on to the issue of inerrancy, note that quotation on page two thirty six. And um, Dallas, in this line here, second last line in your printing, is it scripturam or do you have scripturai? Okay, so yeah, I'm going to have to change it. That's wrong there. But notice now, Irenaeus, you're talking around 180, so this is pretty early stuff. And he says here that the scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the word of God and His Spirit. So, so this kind of perfection is always related to their divine side. In other words, not like this. This is important, guys. We are not. Asserting perfection in the scriptures because we looked at all the problems and they all pan out. No, it's really that's what we mean by kind of an assertion of faith. It is because they are spirit breathed. Now, again on page 37, I talk about them being fully human, just like this paragraph here on page 237, just like our Lord, uh, you know, got thirsty didn't know touched his robe, uh, wept at the tomb of Lazarus, and all kinds of things like that. So your basic idea then is that he was in like us in all things, yet without sin. Note that's in footnote 12 at the bottom of page 236, that Chalcedonian quote. Um, now, a number of pages after that, Go into the business of what inerrancy does not denote. And I bring to your attention that everybody has acknowledged that it does not denote exactness in the order of events, but it does raise the interesting question what about the location of events? Is that okay? Can you move the events around if you move the order around? Uh, note, point A here exactness of quotation and you know what you see what I've got there Matthew 3 and Mark 1 I think that this simple early gospel occurrence does as much as anything to set you in front of this issue what did the voice say from the sky at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased in mark you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased All right so it's the same incident nobody's gonna claim there are two baptisms or something like that now assuming that this didn't happen this you, you know yet you're not having an incident like that with the two voices this is my son you are my son like that assuming that there is kind of like one statement you're thinking then that if what came from the sky said you are my beloved son bystanders are hearing hey what's he saying this is my beloved son or if the voice says this is my beloved son. The guy here is hearing, Hey, I am the beloved son. You are my beloved son. One way or the other, something's got to be going on here. That's all that this section says. Stuff's got to be going on. And it didn't bother anybody. I mean, the early church can make statements like Irenaeus, and they don't angst around. About the fact that one says this is my son, and another says you are my son. So there's got to be a purpose to all of this. Now, this goes and a number of you ask about this specific sentence, and I gotta admit to you, I don't know that I'm real happy with it. And I'm gonna show you my book here. Look, I've got all kinds of smudges and everything here. I got words written on the bottom I got smudges here I got a question mark in the margin <clears throat> this is the sense the sacred scriptures are inerrant is to say that their authors are absolutely truthful according to their intended purposes Or then I put down according to their intentions according to their intended meanings and I'm questioning what I want to say here um, Here's where I'm going on that. If you ask me what time is it, and I say one thirty, turn around and look at the clock on the back wall. I am not a damned liar. See? This is precise enough. For my purposes. That is what I mean by this. See? So that it is accurate to the degree that the guy is trying to do. Now, I I don't know exactly how you say that. That's why I've kind of wrestled around on that sentence. Which leads me, by the way, to a very important point. And that is on page 238. Now, I want to show you my book here because I have an older printing and I've kept it specifically. This point number two in the footnote 14. What is the fourth word? The degree of precision. My first printing had accuracy. Well, interestingly, a student a number of years ago said, I don't think. You mean accuracy? I think you mean precision. So he gave me this printout. He said, "Look at this. This is precise but inaccurate. This is precise and accurate. This is imprecise and inaccurate. This is imprecise and accurate. So if you think of shotgun dispersion or something like that. And he was correct, I was wrong on this. I meant the degree of precision, not the degree of accuracy, the degree of precision. And whatever kind of precision you are aiming at, you know, for example, Luke says in chapter 19 of Acts, When Paul meets the disciples of John the Baptist and they receive the Holy Spirit, and he says there were about 12 guys. Clearly, it's not bothering him if there were 10, 12, 14, 11, or whatever. The degree of precision is fine. This is the same thing about one or two angels at the tomb in the resurrection. What degree of precision are you aiming at for something like that? <clears throat> okay, um, now, a number of you ask, and we 'll get to those papers about this business of here on page two hundred forty one inerrancy as a preservation of revelation about the wedge being driven between god 's revelatory actions and words in history, and I have written in my margin here as precise as necessary. See, the point of this, take a look at this heading on page 240. The sacred scriptures as record of revelation. The argument of of this entire addendum is twofold. One is that there is this certain kind of special nature to scripture as word of God. This is not arguing that. This is saying, we need, we need a scripture that is going to be precise, and I guess you could say, and accurate, as necessary, because you learn about God from his deeds. Remember how Jesus says, if you don't believe me, then believe the deeds. All right well if we don't have a record of the deeds, we can't learn what God has done for us we can't learn what he's like and what God has done for us so in other words the record of God's activities has got to be I'm gonna use a really weird word here now inerrant enough you know that you actually know what God did and what his nature is like so you can't say something like this that all of the nature miracles of Jesus walking on the water loaves of bread stilling the storm you know stuff like that casting out demons none of those happened. and then turn around and say well but he's Lord over nature well look if nothing happened he's not Lord over nature so, at some point, if we're going to get a, a truth on level two, that he is Lord over nature, we've got to actually have a record of instances, and I guess I should use the word accurate here, an accurate record of instances that actually show that. Otherwise, it's not showing that so that's the idea of this thing as a preservation of revelation because the scriptures are a record of revelation we have gotta have if you might say it access to it otherwise we're cut off and by the way look at Psalm hundred five or a bunch of other places where God's mighty deeds are listed he took people in the exodus he drove the nations out of the land of Canaan. He gave them the land, you know, stuff like that. So they're, they're telling you this thing as if the idea is that you're actually supposed to learn something from it. Well, whatever it is, our record has got to have a degree, and maybe I've got to say precision and accuracy, good enough that you know that. Now, finally, there is this issue, and here it's on the top page, 239, about efficacy, efficacy, and that that's not the same as inerrancy. Efficacy has to do with accomplishing its purposes, not telling you the truth. Those are two different things. Accomplishing the purposes and telling the truth. This is Now, by the way, efficacy and com- accomplishing the purposes are what we discuss in Chapter 12 on pragmatics, the impact and, and uh, purposeful nature, goal of the text. I bring this up specifically here because when I was at the seminary in the late 60s, early 70s, And the controversies were kind of boiling about the nature of Scripture. One of the things that was very apparent is that there was a confusion, whether deliberate or not, between efficacy and inerrancy. So you'd hear people make statements like this. The Scriptures, we believe the Scriptures are inerrant. They always do their job. No, that's you take the bus to work or carry your lunch. You know, to say that is not a definition of inerrancy, that they always, they do not return void. You know, something like the word of God does not return void. Or that the scriptures always accomplish their accusing function and their comforting function. That's different. That's impact. That's pragmatics. That's chapter 12. This here, we're talking about the realm of semantics. The realm of semantics. Okay, now, I want to get to your papers here, and in the balance of the period, uh, deal with them. Uh, Chet, uh, Chet, in your summary, this is one of the most interesting summary statements I have ever seen. Look at this, folks. Here's a summary of inspiration, the result of the Spirit. Um, it happens. All right? Good. Now, <clears throat> uh, Chris, uh, thank you for that large paragraph that you wrote here uh, where you try to express this, uh, this connection, going back to the beginning of the chapter, try to express the connection sort of negatively. And here's what you said. <clears throat> To deny the possibility of an inerrant text is to deny the possibility of the Incarnation. Yeah, that's putting the same thing that I was doing, but kind of reversing it. I I thought that was a very effective way to say that. Um, Now, Joe was a lot less optimistic about all this and said, what does the Incarnation of Christ have to do with the divinity of the Scriptures? You see, it's an interesting question. I'm putting it forth and making the parallel to the Trinity and so forth and I guess I would put it like this I am basically saying that in both we have divine in human garb something like that divine in human garb and so I thought in answer to your paper I thought we could do it this way the logos second person of the Trinity Takes on flesh, and in a like way, the thoughts of the Holy Spirit, the pneuma, take on, are expressed in signifiers. Okay? Then I thought we could probably get ourselves in real trouble by expanding on this and trying this. That the Father as creator then works through his creation. This is good Lutheran stuff, you know, with the masks of God or the Chuck Aaron talks about the gloves on God's hands or something like that. I mean it's it's really it's very good. This is kingdom of the left hand right here. So I think there is this kind of parallel. That is to say, God working incarnationally. That's the idea. God working incarnationally. Then you've got to look at all of those passages where I show, and you know, the gospel of marks the best one here, of showing Jesus in this kind of oddball way where he gets mad in chapter 3. He doesn't know who touched him in chapter five. He can't do miracles in his hometown in chapter six. Uh, You know, you have these, uh, this real, you know, kind of low human view like that. And I think this is exactly what you get. In my teacher Martin Charlemagne used to love this passage, Romans sixteen twenty two, I tychicus. Who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord? Well, now, how's that supposed to work? Did Paul, is Paul talking along and suddenly he says, Okay, now I, I, come on, put it down. I, I, Tychicus, come on, I want you to say this, you know. Or does the guy write it? And if he does, what are you saying about inspiration? Is Paul talking before this, and this is Tychicus, and suddenly the spirit goes, And it goes back again. See, once you try to do the mechanics of everything, you get yourself in trouble. What you want to do is have a an incarnational view. So, uh, Joel, the last way I put this for myself here: um, divine attributes and human attributes exist together. Okay, but When the divine is united with the human, as in the Incarnation, and so in the Scriptures, there is never error or sin involved, and it never limits things absolutely. I mean, just like we would say that Christ cannot be limited by his human nature, this is the non-reciprocity of the second genus in systematics terms, so that he couldn't be present in all Eucharists everywhere. So you know, there's nothing, like for example, there's nothing about humanity, the human nature, that would limit the spirit, such as you can't see the future. See? Just so Christ can, you know, what does it say in John 1? He says to Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. See, So his human nature does not limit his divine nature in the sense that he can't do more. And just so in the same way, there's no way in which being human, it would be improper to say, well, therefore, you couldn't have a prophecy seven centuries into the future. Okay, now, two of you, I clipped these together. This was interesting. Two of you, uh, error, and then, um, oh, shoot, I r- ripped off the first page. Who started in Minnesota? I attended Lutheran High. Okay, that was, just, oh, yeah, that's your second part. And this is the business you said, that uh, people started with apologetics and so on and how are you gonna uh, how are you gonna talk to non-believers here's what Josh said when discussing the reliability of Scripture with a non-christian how can I assert their reliability without using inspiration or inerrancy or should this discussion never be had cuz they're not the intended reader how do you talk to a non-christian about the Bible All right, let's talk about that specifically I think it was John Warwick Montgomery who came up with the following notion, which I think is a pretty solid one. I'm going to put this on the board. This is the way you do it. You start out by an assertion of what I would call general reliability, not inerrancy. General reliability, and I think that that's easily shown. The Book of Acts is generally reliable. All of a sudden, in nineteen was it nineteen twelve? You know, up until that time, early twentieth century, no proof anywhere, at all, that you had um, uh, as the praetor in Corinth. Well, now why is this? Just escaping my attention. Oh, Gallio. That Gallio was the Roman uh, ruler in Corinth. All of a sudden, up in Delphi, where the Delphic Oracle is, they find an inscription, and sure enough, he's right there at that time. You know? So, look, it's generally reliable. Then, what you do is you see what does that testify to concerning Christ that generally reliable document at this point you take a look and you say what is Christ's view of the scriptures his view of the scriptures is very high scriptures cannot be broken he quotes from all over the Bible without any question So. At this point you go from a general reliability view to one in which it is fully God's word. But you have to make this kind of spiral transition. It doesn't just go that you start out and I think Josh and Joe what you guys were feeling or the class was feeling is you got to start out and try to prove that first no you don't no you don't you first you know in other words you first talk about it the way you might read Caesars Gallic Wars you do not start out and read Caesars Gallic Wars as if it's a pack of lies now it's not inerrant but you don't start out figuring you can't learn something so that's exactly the way this goes but thank you for that question. I mean, that is really—that's uh, a very, very critical question. I think. Um, now, Andrew, why is it important for the Bible to be inspired? People ask. They understood that it was written by humans, so they believe that the human writer made errors along the way, and so on and so forth. Uh, you may remember from the first part of chapter 11 when I'm talking about the regular I personally am much bigger on the Bible being apostolic and authoritative than I am on it being inspired Um, it is it is the word of the eyewitnesses, you remember book of Acts, chapter 1, who ate and drank with him after his resurrection, but beginning from Galilee, and they went with him, and so on, and they are the authoritative eyewitnesses. Now, on top of this, they're going to claim that they speak for the Spirit and so on, but, you know, uh, Paul's argument, like in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection is not, hey, I'm writing this and I have the spirit. He talks about, I handed over to you what I first received, that Jesus was crucified uh, on the third day, was buried on the third day he rose again, and so forth. So, and then, then he appeared to Peter and he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to 500, See they're talking about the proximate eyewitnesses. That's that's really that's really critical I think that we concentrate on apostolicity especially if we're dealing within the church but also outside. Now, Seth, how interesting was this? How do the non-canonical books fit into all of this? Do we discount them as errant. No, not necessarily. And I think this is an important point to make. Just because something is not seen as inspired in the word of God doesn't mean that it's in error. I mean, I, I would think, I don't know that I could find any particular errors in the second article explanation in the small catechism. So you have, uh, that you know, who has redeemed me by his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him. There's nothing wrong with that. Third article explanation in the Luther Small Catechism. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. I mean, it's not wrong. It's just not apostolic authoritative. See, and so as a matter of fact, uh, that's the. See, you, you can't equate. You can't equate non-apostolic, non-inspired with kind of shot full of errors. That's not the case. Um, uh, the. In, in fact, in fact, let me just go back to this diagram a little bit. I did want to say this today. Chapter addendum, sorry, addendum 11a is strong on the nature of scripture and on the divine side. All of this being said, to be honest with you, this is going to surprise you to hear me say this, all of this being said, I don't know that absolute inerrancy is actually all that necessary. I do think that it's necessary vis-a-vis it being a word from God the divine God but you know what just because there are possibilities of errors and I think almost everybody in evangelical circles is just wrong about this point just because there are possibilities of errors doesn't mean you can't know anything you know as an example five volumes written by Winston Churchill, on the Second World War. If in the first volume, in The Gathering Storm, he says that some people came from Berlin in 1938 and went to Oslo, Norway, to get uh, the Norwegians on the side of the Germans. And they concluded a, a pact with them on April 30, 1938. And it turns out that the pact was April 29, 1938. There isn't one person in this world who'd say, Oh my lord, we don't know if there was a Normandy invasion. See, I mean, that's just stupid. Nobody thinks like this. So there is, and this is why I was talking about that whole business of as precise and as accurate as it needs to be. You know, this doesn't rest upon some kind of scheme. Where it's like pulling out the bottom of a huge pile of pickup sticks or something, everything comes down. Nobody operates like this in any other realm of literary interpretation. That if there is some glitch someplace, ergo, we can know nothing. Nobody believes that. And uh, again, this is why I'm much bigger. On the business of apostolic authoritative witnesses, that which we have seen and heard, we declare also to you that your fellowship may be with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and his Lord and, and the lord uh, Jesus Christ, first John one um, verse three so uh, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time on this, because in a lot of ways, I don't know that hermeneutically it makes all that much difference. Now, what it does mean, if you start talking about the high view of Scripture, is you can't dismiss any parts of it. So if you're really thinking it's only the words of man, it's not the words of God, you can excise parts and not have a complete matrix, we want to say you've got to matrix all the stuff. But but having it as as God's word doesn't make the interpretation of it any easier. Okay? That's a key point for me to make. To have it fully God's word in every sense doesn't make your interpretation any easier. And guys, that's the point of this course. Is to say you got to work so hard at this, being the implied reader, having the right second text, because there's all this other stuff. The cheap, quick, dirty, and nuclear evangelical answer is wrong. Which is this: if we have a high view of Scripture and believe it's inspired by God and it's inerrant, and we have the Holy Spirit, now we're now we're home free. No, you're not any place. You are not any place. Because the fact of the matter is, you've got to do all this hard work of interpreting and the first text and the second text and have that interaction and all that kind of stuff. I shouldn't say you're no place, but you're not very far. So, you know, its I, I always fear that what happens at this point in the book is something like this. The students going along, thinking, "Oh my lord, Vels is driving us into the ground." There's all this semiotic mumbo jumbo, and then, "Oh, we get to 11A. It's inspired. It's an errand. It's the word of God, and there's the Holy Spirit." Whoa! Well, we can ignore all the rest of that stuff. No, you can't. You can probably better ignore 11A. <laughs> in terms of the difficulty of the hermeneutical task. Okay. Chapter uh, Four Monday. We're going to go on to 11b. I do not want a paper from you on this. <clears throat> Instead, I want a large book. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I would like you to look up the passages in this kind of complex addendum, and I'm going to go through, highlight some stuff, amplify On a number of points, this is going to be so important for you for level two interpretation. In other words, what do the deeds in Scripture signify? This is going to be part of the giant matrix for level two interpretation. All right, thanks.